Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. I am Daniel Franco, your host, and today we are very lucky to speak with a man who is one of the best storage banks of knowledge that I've ever met. His name is Adam Thompson. Now, seriously, this guy has the ability to rattle off line 15 on page 234 of Leo Tolstoy's War of Peace. Well, maybe not that extreme, but it's absolutely amazing. Adam runs his own consulting business in the strategic and organizational design space and is known for having a deep knowledge of people and organizations and delivering this in a way that is straightforward, understandable, and practical. He founded his practice in 2012 after a successful executive career which was focused on rebuilding teams, departments, and businesses and he's been involved in a range of profit and for-purpose industries working both in the UK and Australia. With his ability to integrate the latest thinking of foundational concepts of work, people and organizations, he loves to help leaders who are both reflective and results orientated and are seeking to create a strategy that will actually work. In today's podcast, Adam and I discussed his thoughts, why engagement within companies is at an all-time low and the fundamental strategies that leaders can utilize in order to begin their process of improvement. We also discussed the different types of leaders he sees within businesses and his recommendations in the ways that we can actually raise our level of thinking. This was an enlightening podcast and a must listen for all strategic leaders out there. I hope you enjoy. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host. And today we have the man, the myth, the legend, Adam Thompson. Welcome to the show, mate. Yeah, thank you. We should want to start off by asking the first question, who is Adam Thompson and what do you do, mate? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm a, I guess I'm a guy who knows a lot about organizations um, and people in them and I'm someone who just likes being valuable. Yeah. So ultimately, um, I, I remember being... I reckon I would have been 10 or 12 years old and I found on my, my dad was in business. I found on his bookshelf a book called, you know, the classic, The One Minute Manager. Yes. Yeah. I read that and I remember finding it interesting. I don't remember exactly what I did with it or anything mm-hmm. like that, but it was definitely something that was interesting. So looking back, yeah, I reckon I always had this, I'm into this management or this work sort of stuff. Yeah. So, and then I went to uni. Um, I did economics because I didn't have the guts to do arts. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to do accounting and I wish I'd had the guts to do arts because that's a degree I you know, really admire. Yeah, but, um, well, that's, a, that's your next life. That's my next <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> but I did economics because economics you get to have three electives, um, three compulsories out of eight versus accounting had five, so I did economics. Mm-hmm. And then um, a friend said, you want to do law? So I said, okay, so I got into law. And then I become a qualified barrister and solicitor because I was going to go to London and I thought that'd be a useful qualification to have. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like... I've never worked as a lawyer. I'm the equivalent of a doctor who's got a medical degree. He's never been a doctor. Yeah, yeah, so I'm kind of like that. Yeah, excellent. Then when I got back from London, it's I It's a good just, knowledge base to have though. It, it's handy. It, if In a way, it gives you like a perspective of um, we can come up with any answer we want. Mm. That's what's interesting yeah, about okay. it. <laughs> but I did a subject called jurisprudence philosophy of law and I got a massive mark in it. Like I got, I think a 92 or a 93. It just floated my boat in the mm-hmm. sense of, because um, I had this tutor and I remember he sat there 
he pointed at the edge of his desk and he said, I see a pink elephant. And everyone went silent. And then he said, so I'm seeing a pink elephant, which means we have a problem here because we don't have the same reality. And that was the first ever tutorial. And I remember sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm into this. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to go yeah. good. All, all about perspective. And perspective, angles, what is reality? Yeah. yeah I, I ended up doing my final thesis on the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, okay. and how it relates to golf swings from the book, The Inner Game of Golf. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I still remember his Professor Michael Detmold, he wrote, I think our conversation on this topic has now been completed. <laughs> so I still remember that's what he wrote. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well done. But yeah, when I, I got, saw my read list, the, the Zen. Uh, that's my uh, Desert Island book. Yeah. That's the one. That is a, I've heard it's really great. I've got it sitting on my shelf. I haven't, oh, it's, I haven't read it yet. Yeah. It's just, um, it's, it's hard to describe how good it is. It's practical. It's deep. It's, um, it's almost, it's new age philosophy, isn't it really? New age philosophy told with a story about a father and a son which is pretty much true mm -hmm. the story yeah yeah it's easily a desert island book i read it once every probably two or three years i sort of remember oh it's been long enough now i kind of can't, <laughs> and then i read it again yeah yeah so that's that's, that's my desert island book mine's so. I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times on the show the alchemist is one that i turned back oh, yes. to a fair bit just to yeah get re-inspired by the journey yeah. do you go kindle or does it sit on your uh, shelf? i have the hard copy books i yep. find if i read a kindle it's no different to looking at my phone right yep. so yeah the the i don't know why and i highlight a lot not so much the fictional stories yep. but the non-fiction stuff i highlight take notes oh, yeah. so i'm not really good on it on the kindle oh, you so need to get, i do have a kindle no, i just don't use it you, very often. you know you do the kindle highlighting and then you get a thing called readwise and then that automatically collects all your highlights and then you can get it to email you five a day so it's like getting your own perfectly curated instant good quote list. Oh, so it, what you get the app on the Kindle? Ah, uh, you get Readwise. You sign up to it. I think it's an app as well. Okay. But it, it automatically oh, syncs your Kindle highlights oh, yeah, through that. Right. So when that's I'm doing right. videos and stuff, a lot of the times I'll just go through Readwise and I'll think that's a good point. I might do a video on that. So yeah, yeah that's so it's, brilliant. It's a, yeah, it's a great. You may have just taken me off all there those books I've got on my shelf. <laughs> Burn them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. No. So family, kids? Yeah, i got three kids. Yeah. Um, they're in year three, year one and um, kindy. Yeah. Great. So that's two boys and a girl. The last one's in kindy and I say last on purpose. Like yeah. Definitely <laughs> definitely it. the last. Put the, the yeah. queue in the rack. Yeah, no, no, that's for sure. No, I, I found the first few years of um, being a parent a real struggle. It was the first time I reckon that I'd hit a genuine thing that I couldn't do naturally. Mm. Yeah, like I, I played baseball at a good level just within the state. You know, and I worked hard and I tried, but, you know, I had a bit of a natural ability at it. And, yeah. And in school, I had a bit of a natural ability. So it was only till I had kids that I realized, Jesus, not that I'm awesome at everything. It's the fact that I've always just done things I'm naturally good at. Yeah. It was this real, real awakening, actually. I'm, I'm embarrassed to think that if I hadn't done it, the sort of tosser I might be yeah. in the sense of um, <laughs> thinking I'm someone who's good at stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm really you, glad you've got the got blinkers on, don't you? The, I had the world, more worldly perspective by having. Kids. Yeah, yeah. You're not that good, mate. The other bit that was interesting <laughs> was finding out that um, I've never been that good. Generally speaking, only in specific stuff. But none of the friends or people who love me cared. So it was really, it was this real <laughs> nice thing about right. So it's just me. It's not yeah. my achievements. Yeah. So yeah, that was nice. So I found. Yeah. I remember when I first had my kids. I was. I remember my, my first daughter. I was sitting down watching tv like a movie or something like that i'm into sci-fi so i remember it was a sci-fi movie i can't remember what it was and i remember it was 11 o'clock my wife and we used to do sort of the shift work and yep. she would do the and i'd stay up and do the 11 o'clock 12 o'clock feed or whatever it was and she i remember her my wife being in bed and my daughter isla started crying 
at around 10 o'clock. Yep. I'm like, it's not even your time to be fed yes, yet. What yes. are you doing? Yep. And I remember the thought process that went through my head that, and I actually went, shit, it is no longer about me anymore. Yeah. It is, yeah. I, it's not. What, and it's a staggering realisation, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I, I wonder, it's, I think it would be a high percentage on men more than women if men really can get that properly, mm. you know, because like the way I see it, like I've, I was born in a society made for me, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm a middle-aged white straight male. Yeah. Um, and so there's almost this deep sense of, it's embarrassing to say, shock when you have to do something you just don't feel like doing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's and to, and to me, the emotional work of like I'm 46, so the emotional work of my last 10 years has been to actually become an adult, I reckon. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's been it, hard. But it's a big growth learning. The other thing is knowing that you got these little creatures running around yeah. who are watching and learning everything yeah. that you do, every action that you take, yeah. every reaction that you have. Yep. They are sucking in that knowledge yeah. uh, and building their own little personality. Yeah. It's a big responsibility to yeah. have on and someone who hasn't got it right themselves. I know. And, and, <laughs> and the thing is this, even if you're an asshole, they still think you're awesome. And so they will, <laughs> yeah. so they will adjust their view of relationships yeah, now that, according to have a relationship true. with an asshole. That is true. So that's the level of deep stuff that's going on, yeah, at a really early basis. That yeah, either way, they're connected to you. The question is, what sort of person are they connected to? That so is that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's full on, isn't it? It's yeah. self, and, and that connection never goes away. You'll see a lot of workplace stuff when things aren't working okay in the workplace. You'll see some of that sort of things coming forward. It's almost like. Not everyone brings their shit into the workplace, but workplaces can easily trigger people's shit. Mm. So the solution isn't everyone in the workplace has to do therapy. But if we're not thinking about how organisations work, remembering that everyone's got shit under the surface, that we're easily able to just sort of open the hatches and all that shit's going to come out. And then we're going to start blaming the people for that, not realising that, yeah, they've got a bit of responsibility, but the way we set the place up can easily trigger whatever each person's shit is. Some people go quiet. Some go over the top. Some wear the stress internally. Mm. Some become achieving tosses that then damage people. <laughs> like everyone's got their own yeah. shit yeah. that's going to come out in the workplace. You are a big like diving into straight away what you do. You are a consultant that works on yeah, yeah, organi- no, yeah. organizational that's strategy, uh, organizational development and strategy. Yeah, generally I call it strategy and organizational design. design. So the, the way that describes it is it's um. Where's the organization going or do we know where we're going, roughly how we're going to get there and are we set up with how to do it? And the setup normally involves how are we structured, what practices do we use, what do we look at, how do we treat each other? Yeah, Those well, that goes to what you were saying before. I mean, I know you work a lot on fundamentals. Yeah. Uh, you're, what, the point you just made before is there's a lot of other stuff fundamentally going wrong yeah. before you can even start to scratch the surface of what's happening in the strategy world. Yeah. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Well, in terms of things going wrong, it's just a, it's it's all a, a bubbling mess to a degree. <laughs> to a degree, there, like as in you know, it, it's kind of um like heaps of stuff gets done in the world every day. Like we're sitting here in a nice room, we've actually got some nice technology around us. So mm-hmm. despite all the the rubbish and the pain going on in workplaces, stuff just keeps actually occurring. Mm. Yet it seems to occur with a lot of pain. Yes. And I think that's what happens whenever you throw a group of humans together into some sort of setting. And remember the key difference between the workplace and a social occasion, it's the idea of it being goal-directed. There's some sort of either clear or not so clear goal, but some feeling of a direction that we should be going in. Yeah. That forces people together and then that's going to, it's almost now press play on tape and we're going to see predictable things happen from that. So, so purpose, vision, value, you're saying that all businesses 
need that and they're the fundamentals that you're talking to? Or? I think it's easy to say, but but there's kind of a point where it's like saying, well, to win the premiership is easy. All you need to do is make the finals and then get through to the grand final, win the grand final. Yeah. So I think by saying that a purpose and a vision, we forget that's kind of the outcome you're looking for. It's not the method. Yeah. And the purpose and vision thing, it's never quite as good as people think it is. Mm-hmm. And the only standard required there is good enough that I've got half a clue about what I need to do. Mm. That's it. Because if you go for the perfect one, you are going to end up with one of those, we make world-class quality products on a quality scale strategically, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, you're going to end up with one of those things. Yeah. And that smart, no one looks at and no. never reads or takes notes. And, and you know the weird thing? The people who put those together are well-meaning and they want to do a good job. So they're not putting it together to think, I'm going to be boring here. Yeah. They genuinely want to do a good job but something happens to them between when they were first working and they thought that stuff was, was a bunch of shit yeah. <laughs> and then you end up in a role where you're setting that yeah. but the level of guts required to put out a purpose or a vision that's actually specific yeah. that people can kind of think to get behind it takes more guts than we realise because you have to be different to all your general manager and CEO mates Yeah, and sometimes that's a bit of the work I do it's to help people almost to have the guts to be different by showing them it's going to be okay do you think that they get wrapped up in the corporate world? Wrapped up in the corporate world, but it's more the um, – there's a guy called Peter Block and, and he he's like he's one of my kind of – you call them book mentors. Yeah. yeah. Although I connected with him on LinkedIn, it was like I got this childish thrill that Peter Block's a connection <laughs> yeah. as, if he's now, as if he's now my mate. <laughs> Catch up for a coffee yeah, next yeah, week. Yeah. Thing, yeah. I think I even sent him a message as if he was going to respond. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, he's a legend. <laughs> when when he, he started in the 60s when um, you might have heard of a thing called T-Groups. That was piling a bunch of executives into a room and getting yeah. them to talk about their feelings yeah, and all that yeah. sort of stuff. He's written a few books, hasn't he? I've Heaps seen them. a few. They're yeah. All, yeah. And his progress has been from organisations to now doing communities. Mm, so okay. it's been this brilliant thing yeah, as well. his brain's expanded. Grown, and, grown, yeah. yeah, but he worked with a philosopher called Peter Kestenbaum and what they pointed out is um, we're running from anxiety a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And if you couch everything in the idea just to try to understand it, so this isn't the truth, but just how to understand it, people are taking actions to avoid anxiety. That's what explains why we get so many generic statements and that sort of thing. Because you're generally going to be safe if you say something, if you get out your values and you've got the word integrity in there somewhere or trust, yeah. you're going to have innovation in there somewhere because you have to in the current era. Yeah. You probably would have had efficiency in there if we go back 20 years ago. Like There's yeah. certain placeholder words that we see. So the level of guts it takes to have a... Um, say some values that say we do these three things and the rest we just assume yeah that means you're going to be different yeah and that does take some guts it is funny because michelle holland you know business partner here at synergy iq she works with a lot of companies on values and and vision and and common school of thread for her when speaking to to our clients is integrity innovation these words they should just be they yeah. shouldn't be a, a word on the wall you should just go about your yeah. business we don't way. punch we don't punch people yeah yeah that's not a yeah, value yeah, is yeah. it 100% <laughs> a line she will often use is don't be a jerk right <laughs> that's common sense just yeah. don't do it that way yeah. uh, but to strive for something greater than what is normal or what is expected from society is is a proper purpose and vision yeah. to work to yeah. yeah but we get this other dichotomy as well which is there's this little bit of an attempt to be too inspiring. There's been a lot of books put out to say the importance of the inspiring vision and that sort of stuff. Just put out a good enough, Peter Block calls it a possibility, just mm-hmm. put out a good enough possibility so it's got to be enough that it's far enough away that it seems like, yeah, that's worth going for, mm-hmm. but it can't be impossible. So the key word is possibility, yeah. not impossible. And just describe it. And if it describes some sort of future state that seems reasonable and worth having a crack at, 
that'll work. So even if it's a boring thing that's not saving the world, just remember humans, goal-directed creatures when they're in the workplace most times, put up some sort of goal that's not too crap mm-hmm. and people will respond. Putting up a goal that seems magnificent, that's really vague, that doesn't that could apply to any organisation, won't work. Neither does saying um, we're going to just make it up as we go either. So, And that's yeah. where you get like a lot of the modern movement towards um, emergence and the like. Emergence is a nice formal way to say we're making it up as we go, but that doesn't mean we have to have a detailed plan, mm. but it's good to have, I kind of call it gravity. It's good to have some sort of sun or gravity thing yeah. that people can pull towards, but it doesn't need to be perfect. Is it a catch-22 for leaders though? You put something out there and there are some people who are going to get, who are going to buy into it yep. and go, yeah, that, you know, let's use the Elon Musk, uh, you know, you walk into uh, SpaceX, for example, and there's a picture of a, a spaceship on Mars, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's this out there, uh, what seems possible now, mm. 10 years ago, we wouldn't have thought so, but it yep. seems possible now. Uh, where people buy in, they go, yes, I'm on. What do I need to do? How do I go about it? But there are also people in the world who turn around and go, you're an idiot, mate. What, yeah. are, you, what are you doing? Yeah. It's a constant catch-22. Is that why that we, we find that businesses do find that safe playing ground where it's like, well, that's attainable and that's easy and yeah. most people will think, you know, so we're trying to appeal to the masses as opposed yeah. to… I, I think so. And we forget you can just do both. You can put up the Mars spaceship and put up something really normal as well. Like… um. It's okay to put both up there. But what we forget is those things are effective when they reflect conversations that have already occurred. So to put it one way, if you think you're going to change culture by your posters on the wall, you're insane. However, if you have a conversation about how you want to treat each other, the group itself agrees and then says we should put up a poster about that, then that's going to work. So the poster is kind of like a a thing that reflects a conversation can have value as a secondary thing. Mm -hmm. And so with all this sort of stuff, whether we're talking the vision posters on the wall or whatever, it's about the conversations that occur. And it's interesting that all the work I do, whether it's strategy or design, looking at how work systems work, all that sort of stuff, the common link is we're all gonna end up in a room at some point and we're gonna be talking about two things, often at the same time. We're gonna be talking about the work and we're gonna be talking about how we treat each other. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm yet to find, I kind of always have something in the back of my mind, is there any other third category of conversation in the workplace? And I'm yet to find it. We're either talking about the work or we're talking about how we treat each other or how we're going as people. When you say you talk about the work, the work. this um, isn't the strategy? Or? Strategy, yeah. the work could mean what the work should be, what would be appropriate work, that's the strategy stuff. We can talk mm-hmm. about how the work's going, what do we need to change, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff's talking about the work. And then how we treat each other or how we're we going is that part where you are saying, how are we going here? Look, yeah. everyone's eyes are hanging out of their head. It seems like we're stressed. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, we, we seem to be getting snappy at each other. No one seems interested anymore. Let's talk about that. And just being able to bring those conversations out onto the table, it can be quite useful. And I've got a little bit of a, I don't know if you'd call it a trick, but I call it a Trojan horse. So I, um, I do a lot of work with Eli Goldratt stuff, um, mm-hmm. theory of constraints which people mistakenly think applies to production lines if they don't know it very well. But, it, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's brilliant in terms of getting focused on what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. But I can draw it up with some boxes and arrows and I'll work groups through a couple of exercises so they can sort of see Goldrat's genius. I'm always pointing out, I'm just a dude who can explain this, right? Yeah. The genius is Goldrat. But in having that conversation, I always, I think the thing I bring is I know how to drop in certain sentences or questions that get the group to talk about how they're actually treating each other. Because no one's going to rock up, especially in a pretty um, results-driven environment, to say, let's do Kumbaya. Mm-hmm. But they will rock up to a workshop to talk about our work system and whether it's um, effective and what do we need to change. Mm, but in that, the conversation, I know how to bring it across to saying, well, one of the key things for results is going to be how we treat each other. 
maybe not in those words. So we end up talking about that as yeah. well. How do we sing Kumbaya together? Basically, yeah. it's, it's, it's like we rock up to a workshop to discuss the uh, how acoustic guitars work and how we're going to adjust the bridge and the strings, <laughs> not realizing that in doing that, we need to actually have a conversation to say, hey, what does having the strings tight matter to you? Yeah. you know, And then before you know it, the humans are connecting a bit better while they're actually talking about the work. Wait. So this is a, an amazing, I love this topic um, and I'm just flabbergasted by your ability to retain knowledge, by the way, <laughs> while we're on this. Yeah. You've rattled off probably 16 books in the first five minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, this, 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 is, this is the one environment where my knowledge is useful. <laughs> yeah. if, if you talk to my wife and especially my, my oldest, um, my oldest, my, my, um, he's in year three, he's now taken to looking at me going, Dad, that is useless information. <laughs> it means there's no value to me here. I'm just trying to add a, figure out how to put yeah. Lego together. So I'm, so I'm lucky this job called consultant and organizations exist. Because it, yeah. gives, it gives me something that I can focus my to knowledge on and, and be useful. But you're almost like the uh, the Brian Cox of the, you know, the, the um, astrophysics world. He, he has this he ability good, to yeah. put this. Well, you do the same with your videos and your uh, and all your blogs that you that you write. Is you have this ability to put kind of the complex into a simple form or relate it to a movie or an analogy or something like that which is it's a skill set in its own yeah and there's sort of a pattern to it it's 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 to really respect the complexity to say look your situation is not this simple but a roadmap can be useful mm. so i'm going to give you a really simple model and i'll always say and this model is from this person or combines these two people because i yeah. like Every now, like maybe one in ten in a given group will then come up to me afterwards to say, "Hey, what was that book you were talking yeah. about?" And then they'll read the book, and that'll help the rest of the group. Yeah. So I always like to drop in. This is the the geniuses whose work I'm using, and then by actually understanding what's going on, then my next question is right: How does this now apply to us? Mm. And then often maybe there'll be a couple of if you got a bit of the arms folded crew, they'll say, "Well, it's much more complex here." Yeah. I'll say, "Yeah, for sure." Let's talk about how the complexity works for you compared to this simple model. So either way, we end up having a conversation. But what's happened is the group has stepped back. Yeah, they've taken a step back, or they've you know they've gone up the stairs to a higher level to yeah. see the traffic. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. and the model helps them to do that. They're looking down, looking down, uh, get yeah. some altitude. And and once you do that, then I kind of help the group solve. I, I had one one thing where I was helping a group come together. It was originally looked at as a structural problem between the work systems involved in a whole division. But the, I was talking to the general manager, and I and I'd worked with him for years, so I said to him. Your structure, I'm declaring officially not shit. Okay, <laughs> so the problem is not the structure. Your structure is a good, solid, standard structure. Yeah. You know, you've you've got your call center, you've got your delivery arm. It's all yeah. pretty normal. So your problem is in the way your people are working together and what they're looking at. And then we realised that they weren't actually measuring the full end-to-end -end process because they're decent people wanting to do really well, and they were measuring each part of the process. But in that, they'd simply forgotten to measure the time from when a customer calls to when they get their goods delivered. Mm. They just forgot by accident. Mm. So, and then the, uh, the data guy said, well, I can bloody give you that information, you know, and so we got it. Yeah. I did, um, my skills in Excel would be, I'd say, slightly above average, but that's it. I can yeah. run a pivot chart. So I yeah. quickly grabbed the stuff, turned it into a time series diagram, which had lines and, you know, because people respond to pictures better, stuck it on the wall. Maybe. I showed them how to organize and how to have conversations about the work. And then over the next three months, the line, the amount of time it took, the line was just a beautiful, you know, less and less time downward sort of angle. Yeah. People started thinking I was a process improvement consultant. <laughs> and I had to point out, no, if you want specific process improvement, you know, I know the best guys in Adelaide, I'll yeah. put you onto them. But the improvement came entirely, entirely from the group themselves. Yeah. And the part I brought was how to talk about the work. Absolutely. It's, uh, that yeah. is the skill set. It's being that able to it. see the uh, 
the roses amongst the thorns. Yeah. And I've done well when someone comes up afterwards to say, um, well, that was pretty bloody obvious. Mm. That's when it's done well because obviously what I've done is I've hit a fundamental yeah. where it seems obvious, you know, and the impolite thing would be to say, well, if it's that obvious, why weren't you doing it? But in reality, I'll do it myself. Like I won't see things that are obvious until yeah. someone points it out and then I'll be going, oh, shit, I should have seen. So most you said most people see things visually. Most people like examples as a, I think as a way. Of, most people can look at a picture more than an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, and I'm one of those people. I think it's, yeah. that's why I like reading a lot is because when you are given an idea about how to improve something, they give you 15 different examples of where it has happened in history yeah. at some point. So I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, it's been yeah. done before. I can do it. Yeah. So let's use that as, as a base. I'm, in a, I'm a leader of a business and I'm coming to you and I'm saying, uh, Adam, I need some help. Yep. First and foremost, why would someone come to you yeah. and say they need help? Yeah, you've got a feeling that either the business isn't sure where it's going or it's not working as good as it could. Okay. That's it. And it's got, maybe you've looked at your 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 information. Maybe so you're pulling your hair out or, you, or is it just... The, oh, it's a combination. Yeah. I, I, often, it's, I think it's more of a timing thing for me sometimes. Often when someone moves to a new area and frequently when I've worked with them before, so say someone goes from general manager to CEO or senior mm-hmm. manager to general manager, yeah. they often get in touch with me. So I've got this new job. I'll find my feet and I'll call you in three months. Mm-hmm. And they, they do. Yeah. And, um, and often it's a matter of getting... They've had an initial, an initial look. We get clear on what the work is. And then we look at how... How do they actually do work? What do they look at to see how they're doing? Or oh, we'll have a look at the structure to make sure that makes sense. You can even get some good old-fashioned stuff like if it's a traditional hierarchy, if you're running four layers of reporting where there's only three layers of work, someone in there is getting crushed in. Yeah. You know? And then we um, get the group together to get them used to how to talk about the work itself. And so yeah. that would be the situation. But, the, but the, the presenting problem, if you want to call it that, is basically this place isn't working like it should. Yeah. And... It's not a specific thing like, um, you know, we're hemorrhaging money and we need to adjust this process today. It's more of a, um, we're changing strategy. The market's changed around us. We're going to have to go about this show differently. Mm-hmm. And I get the phone call in. So you walk into a business then. Leader yep. calls you, Adam, need help. Yep. There's something going wrong. I don't know what it is. Yep. You walk in on Tuesday morning yep. <laughs> and you say, you have all the all the key people in the room, yep. uh, all the key stakeholders, and you say, "All right, what work are we doing, and how are we treating each other?" Yeah. And you facilitate a workshop. Yeah, that can often be the case. Um, so I've had the initial conversation. Maybe often what I'll do is I'll have an initial conversation. I'll put some ideas out about how it can help. Because what I always say is, "Why don't we just grab lunch? You run me through what you're dealing with. I might stumble across two or three bits of gold that you might think, "Shit, that's all I need to know." Yeah. And if so, I just sort of say speak of me well you yeah, know and yeah and that's that's cool to me if i can hit the because i think it is possible sometimes to cause an angle change in one conversation that yeah. could because i've seen it happen often yeah. enough but otherwise often what i'll say is let me have a think about the sort of ideas that might work then i'll have another meeting and then if that can work then we'll talk about right we're gonna have to get your people into a room mm-hmm. and have a conversation about it i've always got a key question i ask though which is um do you think things are broken meaning are people coming into the room that angry or detached or pissed off or whatever that we need to do some pre-work before we even get to the room yeah okay um i'd say one in five yeah that's the case was it mostly fractured or no 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 sorry one in five is properly fractured yeah we're gonna have to do some pre-work yeah and sometimes there's even been a couple of situations where i've said look the issues here go be because i'm very clear to say if i'm any sort of therapist and it's an organizational therapist yeah i'm not a psychotherapist and so if someone ever says the problem here is that my dad never loved me (laughs) i'm out you know as in I'll say that. Yeah, it's not where I get involved. 
Yeah, well, as my wife says, you don't open doors you can't close. So I'm yeah. very careful with that. Yeah. Yeah, I would never do something in a workshop that push people into that zone. I'm happy to push people in terms of taking accountability and ownership. Mm-hmm. But if, and I'm pretty good at telling when it can possibly go deeper. And I never push people there. Because when we saw what happened to the crows, I mean, that might have been well meaning from a couple of years ago. Um, but obviously, people got pushed too far. Yeah. And that was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for whatever reason. Well, it seems to be, yeah, it's yeah. easy to draw those conclusions. But that could be an example, just from what I know from the outside, mm. of well-meaning we're going to push people emotionally as opposed to physically, yeah, but too far. And I'm very careful to um, go nowhere near crossing over that line. So so we do that workshop. Yep. We come up with a list of… Uh, well, often in the workshop, I'm going to help people see what's going on. So okay. I'll provide not a model, I'll provide the model or combination of ideas that helps them see what's going on. And that's always the key. It's that moment of, ah, oh, we, we know what's going on here. And that's normally going to lead to some obvious actions that we need to take place or some mm-hmm. stuff we need to look at. And my preferred way to work is to then help them do the work. So to, and I'm very specific at saying working alongside people because if you end up doing what I call a review and recommend, the chances that of that actually making a positive change is pretty low mm-hmm. because you end up giving people a report. Whereas sometimes I even say to people, um, let's say I've got a given medium-sized project and it's at the point where I've kind of got all the information I want to know and I'm about to write a report. I always call to say, instead of the report, why don't I just meet you for a coffee? I'll go through what my recommendations are. And if you like them, I will start helping you to implement them. Mm. And let's call the rest of my fee that. Because we get two things there. I don't have to write a report because <laughs> I wrote enough in uni. I don't yeah. need to write anymore. Yeah. And you actually get to get this stuff implemented with someone who knows how to how to get things going with people and get them to understand what needs to be done. Yeah, brilliant. And so, and most times people say yes to that because why wouldn't you yeah. want to actually get it implemented? Which is much better for me. It takes me the same amount of time, maybe a bit more, but I don't have to write a bloody report. How do you get past the gatekeepers that go, no, I want the report purely just so I can tick a box saying I've done something? That's fine. Well, one thing I do is that um, I make sure I actually talk about what's going on. So I'll actually say out loud, hey, look, do, do, you, mean, do you need to be able to tick a box here? And, if, and usually I have a strong enough relationship. I've worked with people or I've built the relationship where they'll actually say, yeah, Adam, I do. That's mm. what's going on. But I would have found that out up front. From, yeah, right. From then I would have had the conversation, what do you need to achieve here? And often I can help them with a pathway to achieve what they needed to do a little bit better as well. That's where the strategy part can come in. So you go to then help them. So they say that, they go, all right, we don't need the report. Yep. Uh, Adam, yes, we want you to get started. What's the first thing that yeah. you look at or do or go about? Where do you start? What's the low-hanging fruit item? Yeah, the low-hanging fruit is going to be um, – what are we looking at to see how we're doing? So if you take the basic rules about all we need to talk about is the work and how we're going, it's finding a regular meeting structure where we can start to get together to get good at talking about the work and mm. where we're going. So I'm going to assume we've got some rough strategy in place now and we're now talking about improving things or yeah. changing to get there. Yeah. Most groups have weekly meetings that are awful mm-hmm. and they're to be avoided, which is a shame because a weekly meeting can be a clearing house of issues that allows us to keep moving on track. So I can show groups how to look at both their operational work and their initiatives. I've invented a couple of methods called work circles and the project factory, mm-hmm. and then I tailor it for the particular organisation. Can you dive into those a little bit more? Yeah, work circles, it's a combination of some of the modern ways of working. I'm, I'm hesitant to say teal because that's become a, a bit of a full-on thing that's yeah. gone a bit weird. But the idea is to adopt some of the more modern ways of working in terms of organising around the work and not around the um, the org chart. Okay. So I call the org chart the home base. Yeah. And I call them work circles just to give them a different name to team. Kind of creates a good vibe. I'm happy to call them whatever works for that organization. And the work circle idea is we organize around the work 
and we also organize around the complexity level. So we want to have a, you call it a governing circle, which looks at how does the whole system work. And then we might have offshoot circles that look at how particular aspects of the system need to function. The big trick to it is you're invited to the circle if you can contribute to it. So a classic thing is a lot of organizations might have a rostering area mm. and the rostering area never shows up at the operational meetings mm. and often they have fights because rostering is accountable for efficiency. The silos. Oh, yeah. The silos. Yeah. And so we'll get the rostering person to be in the meeting and then they can start adding value because if they're a contributor to the work system or the work circle, we need you in the room. Mm. Now, sometimes if that person traditionally hasn't gotten along with people or someone in the room hasn't gotten along, I might have to have the chat to them to say, this is on you as to whether it works or not. Because yeah. you've got history Is that here. similar to like you're talking about work? So was that like the, the holacracy type circle? Yeah. Is that the, what you're talking about? Yeah, lots of good stuff in holacracy. Yeah. Yep, that sort of thing. So it, it borrows on a lot of those approaches, but it works within the existing hierarchy. So we don't need to send everyone on a three-day training course to learn a whole new method. Mm -hmm. It happens organically. But what you end up with is a situation where people are now organized around the work and the people who know what's going on are in the room. Imagine, imagine if you had a group of mates trying to get something organized and you were trying to fix a car and you had a mate who knew heaps about cars you'd probably invite them along. Mm. It's kind of that. Yeah. You know, just trying to get people to be normal about sense. stuff again. We did workshops with uh, a, a big government organisation and we did the, I don't know if you've heard of the human synergistics products, yeah, yeah. the GSIs, and part of those uh, team building products is uh, sort of survival scenarios. You're stuck out in the bush or you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fire, uh, you know, bushfire or whatever, uh, you, or you're in the middle of the, you know, there's a tidal wave coming. And so you deal with it and you're in a team sitting at a table trying to work through this, how are you going to get out of this situation? And one question that we often ask in the, at the end of it when we go through sort of the feedback part of, of, the, of the process is, did anyone ask if anyone's been in this situation before? <laughs> and like it's quite... Uh, astonishing to find that most people don't yeah, or someone right. who is quite reserved or introverted won't put his, his or her hand up and go actually guys I've lived through a bushfire before uh, I reckon this is what we should do yeah. it's, it's really funny so having like the key that. people in the room uh, sometimes is hard because they might not speak up or they might not say hey we actually have some input here so how do you sort of overcome that when when you're dealt with building your certain work circles yeah the, the foundational parts are to point out what we're trying to do here yeah, so okay. this is the idea i've got a couple of you'd almost call them little speeches i make along the lines of um, um i know it's hard for people who don't speak very often to speak but what we're asking is that you don't deprive the group of your angle mm. um there's a guy there's a woman called susan scott who wrote a book about fierce conversations mm -hmm. and she uses the beach ball analogy that say we're looking at a beach ball you and me and you'll argue that we see a green ball i'll argue we see a blue ball but it's only if we actually both share our realities and are willing to say so out loud and willing to listen mm. do we kind of go, oh, wow, hang on. And then we might spin the ball and go, oh, yeah. it's a beach ball. Yeah. So the beach ball <laughs> analogy is really effective. Like I know um, I know one CEO and a few general managers who often talk about the beach ball just because obviously when I mentioned it to them, it just caught on. They really yeah. like that idea. So. Well, it comes back to exactly what you were saying before about gaining some height and different perspective, right? Yep. Everyone's looking through their own lens uh, and and different angles and different heights that the the beat it makes perfect sense. It's really good yeah. analogy. Let's not forget though. There's some parts where you'll never read it in the books necessarily, um, or in, in the advice. Which is sometimes I need to grab someone. Let's say doing a workshop, I'll grab them at morning tea and I'll say to them directly, "You are talking too much." Mm. Simple as that. Like you know, you got all the techniques you can use to give people feedback. Mm. I'll say to them, "You are talking too much." That'll get their attention, and I'll say, "What you are saying is good." However, the percentage of airtime you're taking up 
is too much. What I need you to keep doing is when the room is silent saying something because you're getting everything going, you're playing that role for the group. You're the icebreaker. Keep doing that. But once the ice is broken, consider yourself having done an awesome job and let the others talk. And I'll just say that to people and they just respond because no one's given them that feedback. They've always kind of known that they crap on a bit. They've always Mm -hmm. felt that. And finally, someone has told them. And I'm not bullshitting them. It's actually true that everyone plays a role in the group and someone is usually there's one or two people are always the ones that go first. Yeah. The trick is for them to shut up after a little while and just tell them. It's funny going back to that exact same scenario, the the survival scenario. One of the other questions we asked was, who was the one that spoke the most, right? Who was the one that took the most control uh, and, and you know, almost became the leader of the group yeah. uh, by process of putting up their hand? Yeah, yeah. And it is, it is interesting um, that the lack of self-awareness that some people can have when they are in that situation. That they, uh, there is also the uh, p- position that people just speak because they're nervous and they just want to, you know, they just talk, they just talk, they just talk and they don't, they can't stop and... Yep. Uh, do you see that quite a bit? Or? Yeah, I've, um, just over years of facilitating, it's, it's, I just see it as part of the job. So it's not like I'd, I'd go home and go, oh, God, there was this person. Like it just, yeah, it'd be almost like saying, oh, geez, I was playing footy and someone else wanted the ball. So, yeah. Yeah, as in, I, yeah. I just see it as part of the job. And um, my general approach is I do the equivalent of walking alongside them, putting my arm around them, and then gradually pulling them off the path until they're quiet. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so because what people are saying, it's, it's, so rare that it's actually crap it's just going to be their angle so i've just got various facilitating things that i'll do that help them feel um valued while also shutting it down because you know the the 80 20 rule in the first 20 percent of people talking they've covered 80 percent of what they're trying to say but on the quiet people there's just some simple stuff get everyone to write down their thoughts on a particular really strong question and the fact of writing it down gives people a guts to talk because now it's in front of them. Yeah. Just little tricks that I've picked up over years of doing it and actually done some formal learning more about it because I facilitate so often yeah, that yeah. work well. So work circles was one of them going back. Oh, right? the, pro- the, the project yeah. factory, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the project factory, um, there's various methods. It's a lot to do with Eli Goldratt. He's got a project management method called critical chain, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. It's, a, it's the method I generally recommend for looking at projects. But when I say project factory... Whenever an organization says we need to get better at projects, they bust out new templates. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the equivalent of saying the traffic system is not flowing. Let's teach everyone how to drive a car better. The problem's not going to be people's driving. It's only if you're actually that bad a driver, you're causing accidents that it matters. So to get projects running better through a whole organization, in other words, genuine program management, we need to treat projects like items going through a factory. And then once you do that, all the techniques that have been around for decades and how to make a factory work better come into play. You're going to find a constraint resource, and I call it a pace setter because in Australia, the constraint often, like, you know, you're the asshole, you're the constraint. Yeah. Whereas constraint technically means uh, the point which determines the pace of the whole system. Yeah. It's going to be IT. You know how you yeah, find that out? Yeah. You simply ask any group of people which division does everyone whinge about the most. They're going to probably say IT. That's because IT sets the pace. No one gives IT more resources. No one walks down the corridor and gives IT half their budget to say, we can only go as fast as you can do stuff, so why don't you have my budget? So everyone's asking them to do more and more stuff. So they are basically the machine that sets the pace of the factory. So by getting a given group of people or a whole organisation to see how projects actually work as a factory, they then make some smart decisions. How do we set up the IT area? So its machine can handle, and you'll see it happen naturally in a lot of IT departments. You've got a help desk. Um, that's one example where you have a help desk in the project area. Yeah. Supermarkets, you'll see you've got the express lane, then you've got the other lanes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
service delis take a number so everyone doesn't keep hassling the person in the middle. (laughs) So you can see in normal life all these really good examples of how to organize. And then within that, you've got some really interesting stuff coming through in terms of mainly IT development, which started from Agile, but they tend to go into too much detail. So my method takes a macro view, but it allows you to see how projects flow through the whole organization. And you know the result we're looking for? I call it, it's just simply called project throughput. How many projects do we complete in a given 12 months? If we can complete 8% more projects, that's another month of projects completed with the same resources. So it's yeah. like a month's free production of Just projects. Just by clearing up your processes, you become yep. more productive. And how do I know we're going to be able to find it more productive? Because unless you've cleaned out your cupboard at home recently, you're going to have cans of tinned beans up the back that you haven't touched for seven months. Like it's a natural human condition, isn't yeah, it? That it is. You're going to have shit up the back. Yeah. So unless you've deliberately cleaned up your processes recently, yeah. Now, remember, I'm not talking process improvement. I'm no expert in that. I'm yeah. talking about the way we design how projects move through the whole organization. Yeah. yeah. So if you combine work circles for the operational with the project factory for projects, and then we organize a good, what I call a governing meeting to oversee how it works, then you can actually set up an organization where things flow better mm. and that becomes a goal. And remember that that simple number, 8% means a month of extra work extra for free. Work. That's all we need. Do you generally see the biggest roadblocks being leadership capability? I'd say what that does is almost makes an assumption there that there's that leadership's not connected to something. Mm-hmm. So the way I would describe it would be the circular um, coupled relationship that exists between leaders and those that they lead. Mm-hmm. So there's one way you can look at it, which is people get the leaders that they want because if you're looking for a certain type of leader and you've got a department that's acted a certain way and they seem to get a bunch of bosses that come through, and I'm going to use the word boss deliberately because it demonstrates what the power relationship yeah, is. Yeah. If they've had a series of bosses come through and all those bosses seem to have the same issue, in any other field, wouldn't we start asking, maybe it's not the bosses? Yeah. Maybe it's the way the bosses are getting treated? Yeah. So I think it's a combination of, um, and there's a, a researcher here in Adelaide, Ruth Sims, and I really like her work right here in Adelaide. She studies followership. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, really important because it's a missing piece of the equation. So, so if we define leadership as simply the act of getting a group of people to willingly move in a direction, then you've got some roles in hierarchies which need to have leadership. So a manager role is required to lead. It's not optional. Yep. But that doesn't mean that only the manager roles can lead. Mm-hmm. So what I'd say is that the issue is often leadership, but I'm not going to say that therefore the leadership exists with that person charged with leadership. I might say leadership is a general thing. And then what I would do, especially with a group of people, is say, let's talk about how leadership happens here. What really goes on? Why isn't it as simple as saying, here's where we're going? Why doesn't everyone just say yes? And I don't mean that in an accusing way. I mean, as a genuine question, what is it that stops us simply saying, yes, boss, and doing it? Mm. And if we can get to having that conversation, change occurs. Is it as simple as leaders who, well, Let's use the word manager yeah. so we can. So the people yeah. have been promoted to a manager role yeah. based on their technical experience, and not because they're genuinely the best leader in the group. And also, further to that, they've also not been given the, uh, I guess, role and responsibility understanding of what they're actually supposed to do as a yeah. leader. Yeah, it can be, it can be. So, I think the first things is um, almost to be clear on what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, if someone's put into, the, if we're talking about Management, there's a simple way to look at management, which is um, to get what we expect from the resource. So if you manage a machine, your job is to make sure the machine's working. And it sounds mean to talk about humans like that, but if you want to get really cold, the manager job is to make sure that that team of people actually produces what they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. 
And you can look at that partly as a matter of convenience. It's annoying to have to call nine people in to say, why isn't the stuff occurring? It's convenient to be able to just call one in. Yep. You've got that. Um, and then what you've got is the actual ability to, when we talked about altitude before, the ability to get up above the traffic and see what's going on. So people have unfolding levels about how much that can occur as their life goes on. There's been research, a guy called Elliot Jacks, and then the research of Gillian Stamp. That showed that, you know, those you've got the kids, you know those growth charts they show for kids? Yes. It turns out that capability, in other words, the ability to solve problems with different levels of complexity, generally speaking, and I'm saying that very deliberately, generally follow a path like those growth charts for kids. So the line that goes from the bottom left to the top right, but a curvy sort of line. Mm-hmm. And what that means is it's somewhat predictable how it's going to unfold. So if someone gets promoted into a role that requires them to look at, say, um, a whole system, but their natural capability is better at solving unique problems. When they talk about the system and get conversations going with their people, it's just not going to sound good enough. Mm. It's going to sound a bit, yeah, you're missing something, mm. that sort of feeling. Mm. So you would almost say that that's the capability required to avoid that Peter principle of people getting promoted to roles. How does the Peter principle work again? You get promoted to your role of incompetence. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that can be assessed actually. Like I, I work with a couple of people who can actually give people an idea of where their capability naturally lies. Now, you're welcome to work beyond your level of capability, but it means you're going to be wearing some stress. It means you don't want to have an unstable life outside of work. So it's not saying that you can't work at a given level of capability, but if you are natural at that level required, whether it's frontline management or executive, you're more likely to find the flow. Then we need enough technical knowledge so that the way I describe it is you know when you're getting bullshitted. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, so that's correct. the technical knowledge yeah. rule. You don't have to be able to do people's jobs for them but you need to know what their jobs are for. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. I don't need to know how to work the machine, but I need to know how the machine fits in. Mm. So that's the technical knowledge that's required. And then you have to actually care about it. Um, yeah. And I know this might not sound too standard. You have to kind of like people, or at least <laughs> even if you're not friendly, you have to kind of like people. You have to be the sort of person that discusses people a bit yeah. because if your job is to keep planes repaired and you hate planes – you're probably not going to go well. If yeah. your job's to look after a group of people and you hate people, you're probably not going to go yeah, well. Yeah, or you want to keep planes repaired and you only want to repair them by yourself, then that's an issue. That's it. The team is what makes a good yeah. system, doesn't it really? That's it, yeah. But so, there is a skill. The interpersonal stuff's needed as well. That, that ability to pull people aside, have proper conversations, but that can be learnt by just simply doing it again. Yeah, again. so do you believe that each person going on that growth chart everyone's got their own ceiling or is it a matter of we can everyone can improve what i what i believe so to speak is the way i'd put it is the research suggests there's a predictable curve but but you can you'd almost say you can go into the red okay so people can work above their ceiling if my favorite moment i was introducing these concepts in a workshop and one of the general managers she said so are you telling me adam that i'll never be beyonce Mm. which is such a great line yeah and i actually said kind of and she said, how's this? That's a relief. Mm. Often when people understand this stuff and they can, um, with the people I work with, they give them their kind of, this is how we see your capability. There's often sometimes tears as well because people have lived a lifetime thinking they're not good enough. So to find out with a relatively like decades of research method that says, this is where your flow is, it's a feeling of relief for some people to go, right, so I've been trying to get on a ride that I was never tall enough yeah. for. Other people, though, if you're caught up in a thing where you only feel like a valuable human if you achieve because your mum or your dad told you you have to be the best, yeah. that can be quite a disturbing thing to realise that um, if you're only going to be valuable as a CEO but your natural flow is running a frontline team, mm. that can be a difficult thing as well. So, yeah. 
Yeah. How do you – so I'm going to dive into entrepreneurship for, yeah, for that yep. ceiling piece, I guess, and, yep. and going into the red and the Beyonce. If you are setting out to build a business, you have a really great concept, great idea, you want to set the world on fire, you want to take this company Australia-wide or yep. global or however you want to look at it, how do you know what that ceiling is? You go, okay, so – the next, let's say it's a new tech company, it's the next Facebook, right? Yep. Uh, actually, I've always used the example, the next cure, for, potentially the cure for cancer is someone who couldn't afford an education, mm-hmm. right? So this, I'm going to use the same analogy here in saying that the next Facebook or the next new tech that could save the world is with someone who had a ceiling and couldn't get past that. Yeah. How, how do we know what our ceiling is without yeah, yeah. just constantly pushing the envelope? Yeah. I think you've answered the question in itself without pushing the envelope. We can tell when we're getting near our ceiling um, by how someone is going. If you're not sleeping, not because of the excitement of your entrepreneurial venture, but because it's it's really stressing you, mm-hmm. if your family's suffering. Um, so there's a difference between I must write a book. I've had a book in me. You know, there's authors that write, thank you to my family. You know what I always wonder, by the way? Yeah. I wonder if the family was saying, yeah, good on you, mate, writing a book. Yeah. I wish you'd hung out with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Spend more makes... time being with us than yeah. actually doing what you, yeah. Like, I always want to see what the spouse's response is. <laughs> I, want to, I want to thank my spouse. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, no thanks to you, mate. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> but you look for the stress. Now, if someone's feeling... Yitzhak Adizis has got a brilliant model called the um, the business or the corporate life who, cycle. Who is that? Yitzhak Adizis, okay. um, A-D-I-Z-E-S. Most of the people whose work I love and I use, um, they're traditionally either, they're probably all over 65 or they're not even alive anymore, but they've got fundamentals that are still working. They can even, the fundamentals even explain things like holacracy and why it works. And mm-hmm. So I like kind of working with, if, if I could cook it all, it'd be more like I work with the basic ingredients and know how they put, are put together. I don't look at the recipes that are fashionable now. I know the basics of molecular, you know, how cooking yeah, works. Yeah. I kind of work like that. But Adizis talks about a thing called the founder's trap. And that's when a business grows. It's found to be successful enough, but now we've got the opportunity to grow. The founder's trap comes when the founder's not able to systemize and let go of the business to a degree. The extra bit of information you get from this cognitive capability idea is it's predictive about when the founder's trap will hit. So mm-hmm. someone who's got brilliant problem-solving ability, say someone who's the equivalent to a brilliant detective who can piece it all together and can come up with the answer, might not be natural at systemizing. So they'd be able to come up with a solution to, say, a customer problem, which is awesome. The ability to then turn that into a systemized business might blow their mind. Whereas someone whose natural capability was at more the system sort of thinking, they might, let's say they could come up with a genius solution, they might naturally systemize it. They might struggle when it gets to the strategic part. So... The cognitive capability idea gives us a bit of a prediction about when the founder's trap can hit. Yeah, you got to know your strengths. I mean, like I said, Michelle and I have this conversation quite a fair bit. I'm not the person that will put the pro- put the process in place. Yes. If you did come to me, it'd be a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I have my own strengths, but that is that, so we need to find someone who can do that for yeah. us. And, yeah. and, and that's the whole point of, of growing. When When do you see burnout? the most though like because we talk about pushing the envelope do you see it a fair bit when you get caught in yeah i see it everywhere um to the point where when i say i'm worried people often say i'm worried about it i'm I'm not kept awake at night but it's something that i notice Mm -hmm. and i'm aware of um if you say to someone how's work going have you noticed how often the standard response is a sigh you kind of get the mate you know um yeah yeah and even in the workplace and that sort of thing 
And there's a sadness to that. And we've all got the data, like the Gallup polls, whatever percentage yeah. of disengaged and the rest of that sort of thing. So here's what I think is going on. I think since the mid-90s when email came in, the ability to merrily assign work, um, somewhat even facelessly, um, has never been higher. You've got all this complexity stuff going on. You've got more and more pressure occurring. Mm -hmm. And so simply the volume has now just been loaded on and someone eventually has to say no. And the person who's being forced to say no is more and more becoming the person paid least in the organisation. And so you've got this situation where the pressure is just building. You've got things like um, changes now are constant. But most of us as people are not set to handle changes as a constant. Mm. And in fact, a very low percentage. I don't think I'd necessarily be one of them. Um, because remember that the way we're structured is as an animal, run from danger, rest, hang out with your family and think, thank God the lion didn't get me. So this idea of change as a, as a constant sounds good. But the people who are saying that are usually not the ones subjected to the change. Mm. And so what we've got is this disconnect between the people who need the work done and the people being asked to do the work. We're trying to address it with some self-organizing stuff. That requires a level of cognitive and emotional maturity, which not a high percentage of the population should necessarily have. <laughs> yeah. And so it just seems to me like the pressure is sort of building and building and building in the workplace, mm -hmm. which spins out more and more consultants. But if there's too many people like me, who's doing the actual work? Yeah. You know, so yeah. I think there's this weird... I don't know what you'd call it, an epidemic, I reckon, would be the word of just increasing. If you could have some sort of measure of base anxiety in organisations, my hypothesis is it's gradually increased. You make a good point with the email and I'm absolutely, uh, I guess, triggered by this is when an email pings in or I can feel yep. the email vibrate and my, my phone vibrate. Can I ask you a question? Just yeah. why do you have those pings and notifications on? I'm intrigued by uh, I have learned to not do email is one that I still have kept on but all yeah. social media. Why, why do you think you got email on? Uh, because I'm an idiot. Oh, no, I don't, <laughs> no, I am learning and I think um, I do think I am now going to set up a structure and there's the Tim Ferriss, I'm not sure if yeah. you follow oh, no, Tim no, Ferriss' well, yeah. Yeah, work where it's you uh, you look at your emails between you know the yeah. 12 and 2 and part of the day and you have an uh, auto reply saying I'm only looking at my email so don't even expect a result. Yeah. So that is definitely something I'm looking into. Can you hear your language there? It's interesting, isn't it? Set up a structure and looking into. Uh, yeah. Here's what you do. You get out your phone, you change the settings, turn notifications Just off, do done. It. You're done. Yeah. And, then you and if you've got it popping up on the bottom right of your screen on your computer, that's again, that's not sane. That's so, so something. Yeah, because... And this is the thing, right? But, become, but the pressure you feel, you feel anxiety. In your you case, do, I'm guessing you're thinking because you're in the role of developing the business here, what if that's an opportunity? What if that's a thing? Uh, agreed, yeah. And uh, and that's the bit that I'm getting better at is yeah. realising that no one's in a rush the way I'm in a rush when they're trying to build this business. Yeah. Everyone is absolutely got their own shit to deal with. Yeah. Uh, so when they send off an email... It, it is almost, and, and I know I'm not the only one here, it is almost an expectation that I reply straight away. Right. right? And if, oh, but on myself, I should say, yeah, an expectation yeah. on yeah, myself. Yeah, you created that. Right. Yeah. I know that the person on the other line, once they've pushed send, they, they're not thinking about <laughs> how quick I'm replying. They don't want you to reply, no. I, I don't think. Otherwise, yeah. they would have messaged you. I agree, or rung. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So. I do believe, and you know, social media, we, we use the same thing. We talk about anxiety and, and, and young children these days and suicide rates and all that. We can go in and, and we don't want to, like you said before, don't want to dive into a world yeah. that we know nothing about. 
but it's the constant pressure and, yeah. and peeing and the, that dopamine hit of, of something popping up on your on your screen. So it's going to require guts. Um, yeah, I, I don't can't remember where I first heard the expression, but stepping into the anxiety. Mm. Um, in the I often say when I'm facilitating workshops, the people if let's say there's someone who has spoken quite a bit, I'll often say here's a chance for someone else to step into the anxiety and go first. Yeah, and what's required to turn off your emails is to step into the anxiety of not knowing. By the way, it only takes a week. Do and you do that? Yeah, I yeah. don't have any notifications, notifications. on at all. Um, but the thing is, like, you get the Tim Ferriss characters and they're like, um, I, I use a model of adult ego development and there's combined with another model called Spiral Dynamics, yeah. which talks about values DNA, like the, the very, it's not just preferences and personality stuff, it's like the DNA which drives the way you, you make sense of the world. Yeah. And Tim Ferriss is your classic achiever character. Yeah. It's, it, the colour is orange when we give it. Yeah. And you've got all of the people who follow him. It's all about maximising my diet and I've got to look at the um, here's how muscle mass works and the, you, know, you talk fasting yeah. and you have discussions about the right amount to fast and what to eat before you fast, yeah. you know, all this. Yeah. And it's good fun. Like it's all achieving and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so that's... But his model is go to the extreme. It is this is, his thing. This is what it takes to get quick results. Yeah. Uh, he's not saying it's achievable for no. everyone. It's yeah. interesting though, when you do read his books carefully, he very much points out if you want to use this stuff to just basically sit on the couch and read books, that's cool too. Yeah. So he's kind of a yeah. little bit deeper than he appears yeah. on the surface, yeah, I reckon, and you, you, know, you know his work pretty well. But no, so I, I have all that stuff done because I know if I've got emails there to answer, I like things being resolved. It's like squared away would be the expression. Mm-hmm. I like things being squared away. So old, I've even been that nut job that I've actually held up my hand to the screen to not see if there's emails there when I had to go look at something else. And that doesn't stress me at all. But the moment I see something like inbox eight, and I do go to inbox zero, not every day, but maybe at least once a week I process all. And the language is process emails. I process them, you know, and you have just some sort of system for processing them. So I do that because... I don't don't reckon I've ever seen inbox zero. No. That's brilliant. Well, here's what you do to start with, by the way. (laughs) Make a folder called emails before today's date move everything in there and then start from inbox zero to oh, that. That's a good idea. That's just one of the techniques that you use. But the general philosophy is... I feel like I've just cleared my head just by thinking about it. It's a weird sense of relief. Um, <laughs> but there's little tricks. But the, what's the, the intent or the strategy underneath it? The idea is to live life on my own terms. Yeah. Meaning I'll choose when I look at emails, thank you, not you. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but to actually... Like I often get asked the question, are you busy? And my answer is always exactly the right amount. Because I've got a wonderful person called Amanda who does admin for me, looks after my calendar, and she schedules me really well so that I'm never rushed. I'm comfortable saying to people, I can help you, but I won't be able to start for two or three months. And I've learned that over the years that um, that means I, I never want to be the builder that takes on three houses too many, leaving people with a long list of stuff to be done, wondering yeah, when the trade is going to show up. Long maintenance list, yeah. Yeah, and so I'm very – I mean, you'd have to do that with yourself when you're doing your business development for this organisation, for Synergy here. You'd have to make sure that you're not loading up the calendar to the point where you can let someone down for your consultants. Yes, so, 100%. So I just do that for my – and having Amanda really helps as well because that way – because it's easy for me to think I'll just squeeze that in and that'll always burn me on the end because I'm not going to let down my family or anything like that. So I'm going to be wearing that in terms of not sleeping or I used to. But not sleeping lets down my family because then I'm a bloody grumpy dad. Yeah, yeah. So I've got. Re- I'm into this. So you, I know you have a very strict calendar regime. What is your what model do you follow? 
Oh, it's not really necessarily a model. It's just a matter of making sure there's gaps between things and just a half an hour gap, twenty minutes. Oh, that, no, I don't. I don't go anything that sort Nothing. of formal. Okay. Um, but it's more just that idea of not taking on more load than I can. So when you get that feeling like you're trying to find a gap where something can fit, that means that you're trying too hard. But remember mm-hmm. the structure of. I don't, if, I don't know if you'd even call what I do a business. I'm a business that I've had clients that I've worked with for seven or eight years now. Mm-hmm. So I'm a business in that sense. That's what one friend of mine said. You are a business, mate. You've got yeah. customers. But on the other hand, it's just me. It's just you. So that means I'm not paying anyone's mortgage. Um, all I need to pay is my monthly accounting software subscription, yeah. my editing software for my videos that yeah. I do. Yeah. You know, bugger all, yeah. really. So, yeah, I, I, do, I wasn't – when I first went out consulting, that was um, – when was that? 2012. I was by myself and then I joined in a partnership with a couple of other people who'd been around for about um, 12 or 13 years at that point. And that was wonderful. That really helped me find myself as a consultant. Yeah. yeah and, that, and they were brilliant at what they did what, what they did and what they still do. They still Yeah, they're, they're still consulting. Yeah. And, but the, the business, um, one of the partners started adding in some really brilliant work in terms of global sustainability and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you feel really guilty saying, I'm not into that. But yeah. what I mean is I'm not into that for a business. It, it would have hit a point where I was kind of phoning it in. Yeah. Um, so I sort of took a deep breath and said, look, I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I went back How to being myself. How important is that sort of coach, mentor early on in your career? Really valuable. What I learned was um, the part about being yourself and also the part about dealing with clients that if there's something you believe that they need to know, take a deep breath and tell them mm. what they need to know. And I found that to be so valuable because otherwise you end up just complaining to other consultants why your clients aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, what sort of dickhead way is that to go about doing things? Yeah. So, yeah. It's the fear of not getting more work from them isn't it yeah but you know what you'd think that people would respect people that tell them the truth well yeah. it turns out that that is true that is true yeah i've discovered by being direct. unless you're dealing with a really big egotistical yeah unaware unself-aware well person. that's why the videos i started mucking around with videos last year just for the sort of the fun of it because stick an iphone on a tripod and start yeah. talking they are yeah. pretty cool no cool i'm glad you <laughs> like them yeah. the um but then when COVID came along, didn't know what was going to happen. And yeah. I thought, well, even if I don't do anything for a year, um, the minimum I can do is make some videos that yeah. might be informative and entertaining. Yeah. And I kind of like doing them. And then most of, a lot of my clients at the time and still are often with, um, say, local government or disability or aged care. So industries that weren't relying on revenue from people being out and about. Mm-hmm. So after a sort of a three-week pause, everything just sort of, well, should we just move that workshop online? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So... But I thought I'll keep doing the videos and I realized one bonus I get from the videos is if someone's wondering whether I can be useful to them, they can kind of watch me. I'm the same on the video that I'm, you know, in normal life. Yeah. And so if you think I'm a bit of a dick on the video, <laughs> then that's good because that <laughs> means that it wasn't going to work. <laughs> yeah, and if you right. think I might like this guy, then you probably will because that's kind of what I'm yeah. like. And so that is a very good way of looking at it. Yeah. You're not trying to win work that you know you probably won't get on with the person anyway. So. I, I, what I find is uh, I look back over time, again, with um, COVID, I, I took the opportunity to look back over the people I've enjoyed working with the most yeah. over the years. And I've, there's a few common links. They're all reflective. So they're all up for saying that initial question of maybe the problem's me. And I really like that. Um, they're all up for a laugh at the absurdity of it. That's yeah. another important thing because yeah. it is kind of nuts what happens yeah. in organisations. They're up for that. Um, and they really enjoy being able to understand. So that idea of being able to draw something on a whiteboard often we'll stand side by side and say, this is what's going on here. We'll take the texture from each other. Right, that's great. Let's go talk to everyone about this and see if we can make it make sense. Yeah. So that's kind of the common link between the people I work with. 
And then usually it's a combination of the businesses growing and starting to get a bit out of control or the business is big and there's a feeling like it's running out of life or there's something mm. not quite right and that's what I help them fix. It's interesting because if you are running your business by yourself and it's only you, like, yeah. you know, like you said, you've got no one else's mortgages to pay, uh, then you can be quite picky with your work. But for those who are starting out in the world and trying to grab and grow a sustainable business, yeah. grabbing and holding onto any sort of project is generally yeah. the way isn't it yeah and i'd say just just a bit of gray area there because yeah. i'd be i'd be a tosser to say or you must stick exactly to your principles yeah. because there is a point where you do need to establish yourself so i reckon yeah. get, everyone, a bit of fun, get a bit of cash in the kitty and then you can build on that a little bit it? of that i mean everyone's got gray areas but you might have certain things off the end of the gray area you know you wouldn't touch yeah so yeah that's fair yeah, enough companies but, that you won't work with that aren't aligned yeah potentially you know doing things that aren't ethical all that sort of thing work with, yeah yeah but i mean if there's anything that's useful it's if you've got six months to a year's worth of salary saved up and you've got that saved up if you've got enough contacts that there'd be people willing to chat to you about what their issues are in the business. And of course, I'm assuming you've got some technical knowledge that can help them. Then that's the prerequisites to get started. Mm. Um, you don't need a brochure um, or anything like that. I think it's just a matter of if people are willing to chat to you about what their issues are and you can be valuable, then there's a chance you might be able to make a living doing this. So Very good. Mm. So you, you do a little bit of work with Ari as well? Yeah, show. yeah. I'm, I'm the convener of the Org Design and Development Network. Yeah. So Tell when, us a little bit more about Ari and the work that you're doing there. Yeah, well, so the Australian Human Resources Institute. Mm -hmm. And so the main thing I did when I first went out consulting, I discovered there was this thing called the Org Design and Development Network. And I thought, that sounds like what I do, Org Design. And then I met Michelle yeah. um, from here. And um, and then I said, can I join the committee? This seems interesting. So Michelle was – and the committee was kind enough to bring me on. And I've just sort of been on it ever since. So I stayed on the committee. Tyson O'Connell then convened the committee for a while and he was fantastic at it. And then it sort of fell to me naturally. And what we do is we find someone interesting to come in and give a talk or a discussion to a group of people in South Australia who are interested in org design and development, maybe three or four a year. Do you ever make those, have those convos? So make as in those, present? Yeah, present. I often think, I reckon I've got some interesting stuff to tell the group, but there's a part being the convener there's a bit where I think, well, I'll be being a bit of a wanker yeah. to do this. So. <laughs> well, plan this podcast and see if they want you to get it up. send it out. There's a good marketing I, I, pitch for me. I, 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 I've done one or two. I tried an experimental one where I, instead of doing the usual slides, I just drew pictures on my whiteboard, took <laughs> yeah. photos of yeah. them and used that as my presentation. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. No, I, th I think it was weird. No, yeah, but, it's, uh, but isn't that your style? It's a bit quirky. Not saying you're weird. Yeah, yeah. Quirky is your style. I like to try out, I like to try things out. And that yeah. sort of, but remember at the bottom, there's still fundamentals that are we being adult enough to get along with each other? Are we talking about the work? Yeah. Have we had a, have a, had a crack at working out where we're going? So, yeah, I, in sometimes I think maybe I'm quirky because in the end I try to in the end I just get it down to what's ultra normal. Mm. So and perhaps in the modern world that is what's a bit weird just to say amongst all the fancy stuff, which I respect by the way. I've I've got no issue when people say that's just the same stuff repackaged because I'll say, well, if it's selling good stuff, great repackage. Yeah. yeah. So I don't mind if um using agile methodologies is simply a repackaging of some things that occurred back in 1950 because if it's getting people to do stuff that suits them, what they need. Yeah. That's great. But in the end, yeah, my work is about making it normal or making it understandable again. Yeah. That way we can 100%. fix it. Well, isn't that generally what everyone does with business? Is is grab what yeah. someone else has done and repackage it and make it different and I add often your own, say, that's what niche the whole I don't word think niche. I've had an original idea. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> if I've got any originality, it's my way of explaining stuff. But yeah. I'm always very careful to say that um 
yeah, here's the source books. Here's the stuff. But I've, a lot of the people I work with say, have you read the book, Adam? And I'll say, well, yeah. Well, why don't you just come and <laughs> I'll yeah. buy you lunch, come and tell me about it. Yeah. And I kind of enjoy doing that as well because I, the more I can explain what I understand from a given book, the better I understand it. Yeah, get something out of there it. There is a app now called Blinklist, which people can I just do. I that. saw that advertised. Yeah. Is that what it does? Blinklist is it, ga- it gives you, I think, generally the five to ten of the main points that yep. each book, and it's a ten-minute. It's almost like a podcast or yep. a, or an audio book, but it's shortened to ten minutes, and it gives oh, you like, this is a dot point. This is one example that was used. There's and you go and run with it. So it's almost oh, cool. Doing it. I reckon the part that I like to add in is to say. And here's what this means for you and here's what to do. Yeah, correct. That's the part I well, call right. Yeah, so the Blinklist app is is targeted at those – it really just talks about the book, right? So, yeah, where your, I guess, advantage comes from is that you know the person that you're speaking to and how it would apply to their life. Yeah, so. yeah. and every now and then I'll come across something new and I'm lucky enough to have a group of long-term clients that I can say – hey, I've just discovered this. I reckon this could apply to you. Let's have a talk. Yeah. Look, I'm conscious of time, but I want to dive into that uh, quickly before yeah. you are a big leader, a reader, I should say, and big learner. I was going to say leader and learner. <laughs> leader and learner. Sounds reader good, and learner. It? There you go. That's where the word leader come from. Um, <laughs> you, you, you read, you learn, you absorb. Your knowledge base is substantial from what we've heard so far in this podcast. Do you have a, a methodology of reading do you pick up books read from front cover to cover or do you pick up and get information you need yeah how do you, how do you go about that one of the things i struggle with is that feeling of needing to complete so yeah. i do struggle with that i reckon i've got enough from this i've, I've got better at it yeah. better at it over time but i do read somewhat quickly and i've been um really gratified that over the last few years it's been and especially with linkedin you just get in touch with the authors and mm. talk to them it's almost like oh, what does this person reckon mm. you know so but that would be my general approach is i'm looking for um scanning whatever the latest thing is but often what i'll do is a reread of the classics and in the classics you'll find such fundamental stuff that can apply to everyone yeah that can be quite useful so but i still like if i find that someone who i've liked their work saw a couple of youtube speeches if if i discover they've got a book i still like to go to their book because when i read the book i just get this feeling of depth and now i get it and now i can apply it yeah at least the parts that are going to be relevant so yeah and yeah you still read cover to cover then or do you just pick the information that you need? If it's good enough. Like the last thing I read cover to cover was a book called Patterns of Strategy by Patrick Hoverstadt and Lucy Lowe and that blew my mind. It made me realize that all the strategy work I'd done to date, which generally had got really good feedback, could have been so much better. And so I've started applying their method. I spoke to them a few times. I've started using their method um, you know, and I'm actually going to do some formal training with them because I want to go even deeper. Yeah. Um, so that's an example where I come across something that makes me go, whoa, this yeah. is great stuff. So my strategy work, yeah, I think has just become a lot sharper. Well, that's the beauty of consultancy, isn't it really? And I'm not trying to plug consultants is that we are consistently looking for new knowledge and new ways of uh, adding value to our clients, isn't it? It really is that simple. Yeah, that's it. Um, someone who is working within the business may not be doing that because they're, they're, they're drawn down or dragged down by the everyday running of that business. So, that's it. Uh, that's the beauty of consulting. Yeah. All right, so we get, we are past that hour mark. No worries. We have a, I have a few quick fire questions Go for now. It. I have, you have not prepared for this, but one of them is about books and we do talk a lot about about books. But if you were to recommend – well, I've got two questions about books, yep. seeing that you're a very, a very, very big reader. What is one that has had the most impact on your life? Yeah, Stewardship by Peter Block in terms of work life. Yeah. 
um, just brilliant. Yeah. And Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, yeah, like we were speaking about earlier. Yeah. So we'll put them in the show notes. Now, number two, other than those two books, is yep. there a book that you've recommended to leaders who are looking to improve their strategy, their culture? Is there something that you could put people onto? Yeah, um, I often recommend people read The Goal by mm-hmm. Eli Goldratt. It's from way back in 1984 and 1986. But I always say to people, read it specifically with a view that this is not about manufacturing. So okay. be consistently asking yourself, how would this apply to my organization? So convince yourself that it does and your question is to work out how. Yep. And then the other one would be, it's an audio book and I think it's actually called Spiral Dynamics. And the author of the book, Spiral Dynamics, one of the co-authors, Don Beck, he, um, it's a series of six lectures that he gave. And that is brilliant at understanding value systems and how things work. And he's got such a southern drawl in terms of American. Yeah. You listen to it on two times speed and it sounds normal. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So what was Spiral, the, Spiral Dynamics. Spiral Dynamics yeah, by the Don audio, Beck. Yeah, the audio book is, Beck. Fan, is You get it on Audible? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's perfect. where you get that. Easy yep. done. All right, so if you had one superpower, what would it be? Well, this is one that I've often – I love the film Liar Liar. Oh, yeah. And I know that seems like a weird one, but for a start, you're just watching someone losing their mind in yeah. such a glorious way. Like I've actually cut a few lie lie clips into my videos. Oh, like, yeah. I, I, like, I like it that much. But if I could have the ability for everyone to say what they're really thinking in, say, a meeting, but I don't mean being mean about it, but like imagine people saying this, um, I feel obligated to support your project, but I really can't because I'm scared that if I do, my project won't get up. Yeah. Like if people were actually forced to, yeah. if, if we could say what we're really thinking, um, I'm just here pretending that I like you, but I really don't. I'd rather be somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I reckon that'd be just amazing. If we that could is all, a superpower. <laughs> that would, if, if we could make that occur um, with everyone, yeah. I think once we got over the initial shock of it, I just wonder how much better we'd, we'd go, like to go extreme authenticity. Yeah. So, of course, the shock might be too much to handle. Yeah. But I'd be. Well, uh, it is about delivery, isn't it? If you, yeah. <laughs> I never thought of Lila as a Marvel superhero movie. Now. <laughs> Just watch it with that point of view of, yeah, what, what would happen? Because I think a lot of work meetings, we're trying to work through what's really going on. So I'd yeah. be fascinated to know in life if we could just put on the table what's really going on with yeah. all of our fears and that sort of thing, how that would go. So that's one that often plays around in my mind. That's brilliant. So if you had access to a time machine, where would you go? I'd go back to the 50s. And the reason for that is um, I'm fascinated whether life was easier or not in the 50s. And there's a couple of important things I want to put on there. If you were a straight white male, then life would have been easier for you in the 50s. Yeah, um, so, I'd be, so what I'd like to see is how the world of work was. Was it more relaxed? Were there, you had faxes coming in, I presume. Or yeah, did you have that, no that sort of thing? However, <laughs> if you weren't a straight white male, then you were up against even harder headwinds than you are today yeah, in terms of that sort of thing. Absolutely. So I'd be fascinated to go back to that era to see the pleasant aspects of life but for the underlying almost horrible aspects of would life. Would you try to change things or would you just know. observe? We'd all like to think we would. Yeah. But would I? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, we all know that bad shit's going on, yeah. you know, in the world, but are we actually out there protesting? So, yeah. you know, I like the illusion that I would have done. I, I would have had conversations, I think, but would they have been effective conversations? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I have brought people up on stuff that I haven't thought was all right. I, I have done that in my life. Um, but... But in the era that, but in the era, in, in an era that that is not alright. But in the fifties, it was probably more accepted. Would we'll be fat. I mean, because I'd naturally start. Well, I'll, I'll do the cooking. Yeah. What would that be like if someone? What do you mean you're doing the cooking? Yeah. Like, Sorry. like, um, yeah. Yeah. So, no, but but that's one particular era that does fascinate me because of its so-called illusion of the pleasant life. But I've got this feeling that it would have been so much 
even more so well, it, hidden evil shit going on under the well, surface. Well, I think you nailed it. It's the illusion of the simple life for the white male. The straight white male. <laughs> the straight yeah. white male. Yeah, yeah. and I'm very hyper, and I'm that, very hyper aware of that. That yeah. I've got the strongest tailwinds of, like me, my demographic has got the strongest tailwinds of anything. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and last one, just to finish off and round off, uh, you are a dad. So yes. I love a good dad joke. Do you have any good dad jokes oh. that you can share with us? Let me let me think. A good a good dad joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it counts as a dad joke or not, but it's one of my favourites. If it's is, a horrible joke, it's a dad joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, horse walks into a bar. Bartender says, why the long face? Horse says, it's so I can eat the prairie grasses while also being aware of predators. <laughs> <laughs> We, we got a laugh coming from the other room. So you've obviously done well. Well done. Thank you very much, Adam, uh, for uh, coming on. Really the a pleasure. Energy podcast has been, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, thank uh, you. I've learned lots in the hour. So thank you very much. Where do we find you? How do we get in contact with you? Sure. I put my videos up on LinkedIn every week for mm-hmm. people who want and each video has an article that goes along with it. So my blog, which I started back when I was working in a salary job is called Zen Organizations, just Zen Organizations, one word, dot com. And people can sign up there and right. that way they'll get the video um, and the article to their inbox Perfect. every week. Perfect. Otherwise, LinkedIn. My business is called Thompson Organizations. And so my website is thompsonorganisations.com.au. But mainly just connecting with me via my blog or on LinkedIn. Perfect. It's probably the best way to get in touch. Thank you very much again, mate. We'll have to have you back on again. Oh, that'll be a pleasure. At some point. It'd be great. Thank you very much. And that's us signing out. Cheers. Okay. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.